Hi, everyone, and welcome to A Leap in the Dark with John De La Cruz. Thank you for listening to the six episodes already in this series. And we're back. We're back with um, with Judy, with RJ, and with Abby to see where we are after our initial conversations as individuals. So what I'm hoping we'll do today is to have a conversation, a half hour or so, in which we kind of like a review where we were at the beginning, where we are now, and where we see things heading towards in a much more open way, in a much more like of kind of um, discussive way as well. So even though my guests do not need any introduction, I'll pass the mic over to each one and they can introduce a little bit about themselves because in the time in which we've had since the original recordings, you know, our positions may have changed or we may have moved on or we may have like so be doing other things or other areas of interest may have developed. I don't know. So first of all, we've got Abby Guido. And Abby, would you just like to say hi? Absolutely. Thanks so much, John. So just a reminder, I'm Abby Guido. I am a faculty member over at Tyler School of Art and Architecture, which is part of Temple University. And my big change in title is that I am now a tenured faculty member, so I'm an associate professor. Awesome. Congratulations, Abby. And next on my little Zoom tiles, I've got RJ. Hi everybody. Uh good to good to be back and thank you John for for inviting me back. Um yeah, a lot's been going on with me. Uh you know, by day I am the manager of digital strategy for the health science schools at the University of Pittsburgh. This is a relatively new position for me having switched from the business school. Uh so my my teaching work is mostly adjunct focused. Uh I teach marketing and design at the College of Business Administration at the University of Pittsburgh, the Katz Graduate School of Business, also at Pitt. Uh, I teach design and marketing at Point Park University, interactive design at the Community College of Allegheny County. And because that's not enough, I added two more positions to my slate. I teach user experience at Western Kentucky University. And starting this fall, I'll be teaching visual storytelling at West Virginia University. Wow, RJ, that's... (laughs) I don't know whether you have time to sleep. Um, I get a full eight hours every night. (laughs) That's awesome. Over on the top of my tiles, I have Judy Wood. Hey, John, thanks so much for doing this uh, follow-up. Great, uh, great idea. And tough to follow RJ there on that. uh, um, And Abby on their successes. Congratulations. What a full plate. Um, I am adjunct professor at um, Humber College here in Canada, just outside uh, in Toronto. Um, We have two campuses that um, I teach design, um, focus a lot on typography, um, project management, full gamut. I have a small independent um, studio that I'm working on client projects, working with corporate clients, doing some in-house training with them to help them kind of kind of hurdle through some of their challenges as far as projects that maybe their in-house staff doesn't have the, the skills set for and uh, kind of help them polish those things off. So yeah, looking forward to, uh, to this discussion and seeing where uh, things have evolved to. It's, uh, it's been what, a year and a half? Yes, it has. Yes, it has. But you know what? The best wines take a long time to get their flavor, right? So, but yes, here we are. And there's a lot that's been going on. I mean, when we first started having these discussions, we were taking tentative steps back into the real world, back into into the physical space. 
Some of us were teaching hybrid or high flex, um, and we were still celebrating the use of new tools we'd introduced to our teaching practice during COVID, but we were getting back into the classroom. Where are we now? I mean, personally, I feel that I've really enjoyed the return back. And I've also learned a few things in terms of the the whole high flex approach that didn't seem to be working for me. I still like to be able to offer a high flex approach to students in extremis. So, you know, if there are extenuating circumstances, a student can't get to campus, then if there's like a deliverable of some kind, like a demo or a lecture or some kind of talk, then I'll get the Zoom recording on and I'll get lots of, I'll allow students to come onto Zoom. Nobody seems to have exploited this. And I'm finding that most students are, are actually happy to be in the classroom and working now. I think that when we first had our conversations, I don't know, some maybe felt that they would rather have been on Zoom. Um, they weren't sure. They weren't sure. Everything was kind of like almost like a new world. But I'm feeling more comfortable back in the classroom now. I'm finding that those water cooler moments that we were having, those instinctive moments of creativity, I'm finding those happening again. And I'm enjoying it. And I'm feeling that students are giving their best work again. I don't know. What what do you guys think? I'll I'll hand it over to you. You just um let's see if we can just jump in and keep things flowing. So over to you. I'll just open on that discussion. I can jump in and share a little bit about the flex you're talking about is when you're in the classroom and some folks are also online. And personally, being someone who makes the schedule, I actually decided last semester that I was I was done my time teaching online. I too really missed the being in the classroom with the students. But more than that, I, I wasn't very happy with attendance issues. And for me, I was still finding that for the classes that are hybrid, which a lot of our class offerings have stayed, which is one day in person, one day synchronous online, that those students were more likely to send a message like, hey, I can't make it in today for the in-person class. Can I still be online? And, you know, we're all very active educators and you're moving around the room. And I very quickly would forget about the student that was still on the Zoom in a Zoom class while I was in person. And so not only did it make me personally decide, I, I just was interested in only teaching in person now, unless unless it's called for to be online. Um, but also we as a department changed our attendance policy and you can ask to come online if you're not going to be there. It is now counted as an absence. And that's regardless of reason. We are very giving with how many absences you get. So you have plenty to accommodate any type of illness you might have. But if you opt to be online, that is counted as an absence either way. And it's helped decrease the students that are asking to come online and it's helped increase attendance, which is an issue we've seen definitely increase post pandemic. Mm hmm. That's interesting, Abby. If I can interject there, I'm just curious, do you have a um, penalty or is your uh, final success in your course predicated on attendance? Um, we don't have, we, you know, att participation and, and attendance isn't part of our grading system. It was pulled out many years ago. So 
it is something that I am personally seeing as an issue that students, um, like you said, are choosing to say, you know, I'll do this online. I'll look at your lectures um, because I'm not high flex. I'm just giving them uh, the lecture decks, but they're completing the projects. So as long as they're meeting the outcomes, at the end of the day, I can have students go through an entire semester that I may have only seen once or twice of a 16-week cycle. So, you know, this is a really interesting point that you've raised, and I'm curious to see how your college or university is addressing that. So it's very dependent on the department. In our department, part of grades for any project include process. So that's one way that you can be penalized since we're doing iterative design. You know, if you're not seeing the steps along the way, it will impact the part of the rubric under process because you haven't really shown that process along the way. In addition to the process grade, there also are just penalties that if you miss a certain amount of absences, you just do not pass the class. And then every time you miss a deadline, it's up to you and the instructor to decide how that's going to impact your grade. You know, if you know you're going to be absent, you have to reach out to them within 24 hours and let them know how you're going to make up the work. So there are a lot of checks and balances that we're, we're testing out and constantly tweaking to try to encourage more active attendance in classes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So my, my teaching experience since the last time we spoke is still contained to the online realm. Uh, I have not been back in a, in a brick and mortar classroom to lecture in, in a while. And for, for the most part, uh, I did teach in the fall in, in a classroom, but it was like for an advertising class and, you know, all that, all those things considered the one thing that is, is really what I'm really aware of is the quality of student at different institutions. So for example, at Pitt, the students in the classroom, they're attending, they're showing up, they're engaged, they're interested. It's, it was great. It was total catharsis. It's like, this is why I'm teaching. It was great. And then at another institution, it was absolute dread and agony. You know, it was an asynchronous course with students that, were juniors and seniors in 2021. And what I realized is that they were so woefully unprepared for the rigors of college that I even had people asking, how do I log into Blackboard? What are what are the dates of the the school semester? What's the the semester dates? When I had I had a student email me after finals week asking me when finals week was. So like each of these institutions is is handling uh, everything so completely different. And uh, for me, teaching at all these different schools, it's a lot to juggle. And and it led to a lot of uh, confusion at times. And, you know, with with respect to attendance, obviously, that's a moot point in the asynchronous classes. But I found that even in the synchronous online classes, I just I just did away with it. I completely ignored it. And and the reason for that is if you show up on time and in person, uh, you get the benefit of the live lecture, plus the ability to ask me questions or converse or to get a, a critique on your work, whatever it is. And then if you don't show up, well, then you just get the recorded lecture. So I found that consistently I'm putting students in a position where they get to choose what's best for them. And uh, for the most part, people show up, but then you get some that don't. And those that typically don't coincidentally also don't seem to be the strongest students. So it's been a really interesting sort of case study for me. 
this past year or so. Yeah, I, I'm in, I'm online for assessments. So of a 14, 16 week cycle, I might do for um, online, everything else is in class, and I actually do enjoy it. Um, however, with that said, I am the only one in my classroom wearing a mask. Uh, we have done away with any mandates for, you know, vaccines or uh, requirements or masking. However, I still care for a senior parent. So for me, it's just a little extra level of, of, of caution that I take. And, and I find the students are incredibly respectful. And, you know, if they are sick, um, you know, they'll either wear a mask if they're at the end of their illness or they will call and say, look, I'm sick and I won't come in because I don't want to compromise you. And but I don't have that high flex ability. Um, now, yeah, I can turn my camera on, but my teaching isn't really in front of my computer when I'm in a classroom. It's a lot of, you know, hands on, very practical exercises that, you know, it might not be on the computer, it might be tactile, and they may have to do color models, um, they might have to create, you know, a die line and a die cut, or, you know, whatever that happens to be. So for me to do a high flex, yeah, I would need a separate camera and a mic that followed me and watched me. And so it doesn't, it wouldn't give that same experience. Um, I going into the fall moving forward, I understand that um, my courses, I do have the ability to, to go 50-50 if I want. Um, so 50 online, but I, I really like the assessments online that I can do one-on-ones. And you're probably going to segue this um, to, to technology, but I use technology that I used when we were fully online still in my classroom as a means of peer review, as a means of dynamic assessments. And that, that I find is still a really great way, but that one-on-one, so I book off a full week and all it is is me meeting with students for 15, 20 minutes, whatever that is, to give them that feedback, you know, and it could be very iterative through the process. So Abby, to your point, yeah, making sure that we are grading process um, so that, you know, that's really kind of how I can give them a pass fail because otherwise they're, they're gone. Mm. That's a really great segue, Judy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of, of the tools, you know, that, that we're using, uh, it's a two, two angle, like sort of um, prompt, I guess. Um, first of all, yeah, sure. Uh, some of the, the tools that the communication tools or collaboration tools, I found that I can carry through in some courses, they're working and students are using them, you know, lots of Slack spaces in other courses, they, they're just not. But then attendance has been like 100% every week, really, you know, just about, you know, just about 100% uh, in person. And so maybe they don't need to use those tools when they're working closely together. But I found that um, for collaborative work, that having digital tools that sit outside of, say, Canvas, you know, whatever other LMS uh, we're using, does seem to have an impact. And that's been kind of nice as well. And in fact, I leave them to it there, you know, like so I'll supervise, but I'll I'll leave them like so writing their little blog posts about typography, for example. And and students contribute each week. They're there, they're writing, they comment on each other's work, and it and it, it kind of like sort of sits quite nicely within the overall environment, teaching environment. But something else like sort of kind of cropped up over this year for me, and I'm sure it might be the same for you guys, because we're all using tools, particularly Adobe tools, 
that require processing power. So the question of equity came up for me. But if we are trying to do everything away from, from campus, you know, if that's what we're trying to do, are we being equitable? Because some of our students may not be able to have the equipment that they need. If we're on campus, like it's easier for them to borrow, to go to a lab. But if, are we putting too much expectation on what, what students can actually take advantage of? And I've had this, for example, with 3D projects, you know, where they've had to use um, Substance or even Adobe Dimension, which is kind of a little bit more low rent, um, but still requires a machine that can handle it. Some students are running really old um, computers and they just can't afford to, to get anything new and, and they struggle. And they struggle, you know, so we have to make kind of compromises. And I think that that can only happen in person. I've only seen it happening in person and not really through online means. Um, so over to technology, is it equitable? Are any of the tools, that uh, collaboration tools still being used? I can touch on whether or not there's equity in it. I mean, I, I think that obviously there's some enterprise accounts where every student has access to the same software and that's on the university level, whether or not that's something they provide for their students. Um, but I also think that when the pandemic began and we all just quickly had to make this shift, we couldn't have these conversations. The students didn't have the option to say, I'm going to be an in-person student or I'm going to be an online student. But I do think as we move forward and if we are developing curriculum that is made to be delivered online, for example, in my program, you cannot get through the degree program without taking some in-class, in-person classes. We just don't have enough sections of every single class online to be able to fully make it, which means that they have to be located somewhere close enough to campus that for some of their classes, they'll have to come. And this is part of what they sign up for as being a student as part of Temple University. They know this. They did not sign up for a program that was a fully online program. And so I think some of that does get put on the students that they have to make decisions when they're you know, selecting where they're going to go to school, whether or not they're going to be located close enough to a university. You know, for us, we can have these conversations so easily because we're always talking about a little box. But when you're talking about, you know, engineers and other, you know, science labs, they have to access the equipment on campus because now it's, you know, millions of dollars in, in equipment versus us, which might be, you know, a $10,000 computer. So I don't feel personally responsible for making those types of decisions because we are not selling it as something you can do fully online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the issues that I've experienced with relation to technological equity are mostly contained to subscriptions and costs, not so much the hardware. Anytime there was a, a hardware issue, student not being able to use a particular version of Adobe software, in particular like Adobe XD, um, which you know requires a specific type of processing power, but also is different across uh, operating systems, those students have just used the computer labs uh, on campus. It's not like the entire programs that I teach in are all online. They are not. If anything, my class is the only one that is online out of 
the rest. Being able to accommodate those students that are that are essentially paying a subscription service for their software, uh, that can be a hardship for them, particularly on the community college students. Uh, I received a lot of issues related to that. Um, but the the other thing is not even so much software, but as it is like peripheral subscriptions or peripheral tools that are used in the classroom. So for example, like LinkedIn learning is utilized a lot at Point Park where I teach interactive design. LinkedIn learning is not a part of my curriculum in that class, but there are tools there that the students by virtue of their tuition have access to. So when I tried to show some videos in my community college class, those students didn't have any access to it and they refused to even look at it or even think about it, let alone get a LinkedIn profile. So uh, that, that posed a lot of issues. And so, you know, what, what I did instead is, okay, um, you have access to the creative cloud, but Adobe XD for whatever reason, doesn't run on your machine. Just use Photoshop or Illustrator to make up, interfaces uh, in mock-up interfaces and in those applications, and I'll take it as it is. The fact that you're not completing the assignment to its true ideal and it's a technical problem, you know, I have to be able to compromise Mm -hmm. and, you know, sometimes compromise deeply for the benefit of the student, which of course I'm always willing to do so long as, you know, the, the, the conditions are right. So, you know, that that was primarily the issue that I came up with. I had some students that weren't even aware of a student subscription to Adobe. So they were pay, paying the professional uh, level in versus the, the student, which is like 30 bucks. And, you know, that also identifies failures, operational failures within the degree, the program, the school, and not being able to communicate those types of situations clearly. So, yeah, I had some some angry students that they were paying 50 bucks and they could barely afford that because all of our students are working one way or another. They are all working their butts off. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, my issues, luckily, uh, Humber subsidizes the cloud subscription. Now, they're still paying for it, but it is a, um, a subsidized cost. I have several of the, the programs that I teach in are uh, bring your own laptop, bring your own computer. So, you know, like Abby, this is upfront. This is, these are the expectations of the program, join or not, but you are going to have in to the extent that they talk to processor speed, they talk to RAM and, and storage and everything that uh, from a set requirement. So go out and do your homework, your research, understand what those costs are. I have students though, that are coming in with tablets and now that Photoshop and Illustrator are as an app, they're saying, well, I can do it here. But the learning outcomes talk to, you know, working in a team environment, talking about process, talking about that whole iterative stage, and it's not giving them the same experience. So when I shut them down and say, no, you have to do this, this is where I get the pushback. So from, from that particular aspect, and in that particular course, it is not a mandate to have your own computer. And so they have access to the labs. They have access to the to the uh, computers in the various rooms. So that's a tough one. That's always a little, I think they're going to have to add some narrative to their handbooks and to their program outlines that defines that because it is, um, it is a little bit of a challenge. Is that part of the outcome or not? 
And then that becomes an equity problem because not everybody has an, an iPad. So now suddenly is everybody going to have access to an iPad and can we provide that? Judy, that's such a great point. Cause I dealt with that uh, this semester as well. And I had to keep coming back to the students and saying like, if this is the only way you can complete the work, I'll, I'll permit it. It's I'll accept it, but you have to realize that at, at the end of the day, professional work in the professional world is not exclusively being done on a tablet. It's one tool in your collective toolbox, use the right tool for the right job. And so like, you know, coming back to that earlier point about the students that we have now, especially if you're in the first years and and sophomores, like those kids were juniors and seniors when they all had to, to learn from home. And a lot of the things that I've experienced with first year sophomores in a regular semester were completely thrown off with this new crop of students. And even like addressing professional expectations at the most basic level um, was really quite challenging. And it, it was very confusing as to why that was the case. And it, and it's because they essentially missed like a year and a half, almost two years of core fundamental schooling in general uh, when they were 16 and 17. So uh, I had to spend a lot of time just talking about the profession and the industry and, and how things happen and why they happen the way they do and what software, all of that stuff, the basic primer level of stuff that you go through in an intro class. I'm wondering how Adobe's move to lesser to cloud-based versions of say Photoshop, for example, are going to make a difference, you know, because do we really need the processing power then, you know, is it just like, so do we just need access to the cloud? And um, I found in terms of when we're working like, so with user experience, for example, or user interface design, um, students are favoring Figma because of its um, cloud capabilities over say Adobe XD, because collaboration is so much easier and, you know, it, um, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of like a platform platform agnostic, you know, so as long as you've got your browser, you can be creating lots of, um, and working on the requirements for the assignment. Little aside, I guess, um, and I think we should talk about this, is how do you guys feel that AI is going to impact everything that we've been talking about? I mean, I was just, I was just looking at lots of this really exciting new stuff that's coming out of Photoshop, new, new feature in Photoshop with Firefly where you can just do less of um, AI fill with just one prompt. And it's kind of, that seems to be the, the conversation du jour. But the funny thing, John, I'm over here laughing a little bit because I know by the time this gets edited and published, <laughs> <laughs> your your Photoshop just came out with that is going to be something completely different because yeah. I'm sure what's blowing everyone away is just the speed it appears things are happening. You know, being coming from the academia, academia research side and thinking about like, how are we going to incorporate this, but also how are we going to research it and bring it to our practices? It feels like every time I have an idea, I see a new article. I'm like, well, they already did it. Like mm. everything is just speeding along. And I I said, I think this is going to have the largest impact of anything in, in my lifetime. And it's hard to predict exactly how. I know that my 
approach is incorporating it into my teaching as fast as I can and talking about these tools. And, you know, Judy, going back to our talk about process and how important that is when you think about grades and attendance, to me, AI also can be brought into the process of things. And we've started to do that, in fact, by when you're concepting, putting the ideas in and seeing what gets generated, whether you're using ChatGPT and it's just text concepts or using some kind of image making and having that be part of the process to say, okay, I did do this and now I'm taking what I did and I'm refining it. So to me, I think at this stage, before we actually know whether or not we'll all be teaching in five years, that it seems like it would be a a misstep to ignore it and and hope that it doesn't happen, that we have to figure out ways of embracing. Mm Mm-hmm. Abby, you might have seen this, uh, but I got a good laugh out of it. So in the graphic design faculty Facebook group, uh, we were talking about, you know, the where is AI going to interrupt our practices or teaching practices? And uh, someone put up a graphic that said to replace graphic designers with AI, clients will need to accurately describe what they want. We're safe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I just saw that as well. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm loving this, this sort of AI revolution. I've always been a technologist. I really enjoy uh, investigating all of this to the point where like in my day job at Pitt, I'm trying to spearhead AI applications for the benefit of all of the, the marketing communications professionals at the university. And um, the one thing that I've encountered with them and students as well is a significant amount of fear and anxiety. And I have to relay back to all of these folks that like AI is just another tool in your tool set. I don't believe it's something that is ever going to truly replace the graphic designer, much like how marketers that learn how to AI, they won't be without work. Marketers and designers that refuse to learn anything about AI are the ones that will suffer with job outcomes. So uh, to that point, I think that we have a collective responsibility to introduce these tools in our classes in a safe environment where they can experiment and learn how to use these tools to their advantage and essentially build out their technology stack. What gives them the best results all the time? Now, the, the supplemental point to this and it's really reinforcement is uh, a couple weeks ago, I did a presentation to a bunch of Pittsburgh area CEOs. And I talked a lot about AI and more specifically, I talked about student interests in AI and how every single one of those CEOs should hire my students into internships so that they can figure out how AI can best be applied to their businesses. And these CEOs were like, they, they're calling me up. Like I got a dozen calls the same day. And the thing is, like, even at that high level, people that are responsible for running multi-million dollar organizations still experience that same sort of trepidation and anxiety. They need our people, our students to help them figure out how to apply these tools. And so, you know, that's why I'm really excited to introduce all of this stuff into the class. And, you know, we're going to make better, more informed more uh, agile students uh, as a result. And not only that, but like when you can combine AI with your, your, your sort of innate creativity, the quality of the work can be so much more profound, so much better and exciting than what you could do normally. Even to the point where like, you know, I don't, I've never met a designer that loves photo retouching. 
right? Um, but I know a lot of designers that love taking photos and, and getting paid to, to do photography. That is an, a natural, optimal output for, for that type of, of work. So don't, don't tell uh, the again, photo retouchers. Yeah. Sorry guys. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think that it's only going to grow and expand and you, we need to be on the ground floor right now. I couldn't agree more. I um... And I, I see that our college just released today because, you know, that everybody is like trying to embrace this and, and get all over this as quickly as we can, especially because, you know, we're, we're now in high mode of development for the fall programs. Um, so I'm seeing electives that are just specific to AI that can be smattered within all different programs. So it's not specific to marketing. It's not specific to design or um, advertising. This elective can get dropped in and then those tools can get integrated into whatever course it happens to be. I still think, and maybe that's just, you know, a, a little bit of a caution from my perspective that making sure that it is authentic work, that the content that they're producing, I don't want to see them writing content for their blog with AI. I want that to be a reflective response from them. I don't want, now I don't mind if we're doing an editorial piece and it's on the topic of snowboarding and you want to go and have it because we just were really focusing on typography and typesetting skills and layout design. Brilliant. No issue, but I don't want it. You know, you're, you're strapped for time. You're way too busy and you pump it in and ask them for a reflection, right? Like it's things like that, that we're going to have those fine lines of making sure. And how do we do, do we have the tools as instructors to be able to, to catch and monitor that? No, No, I actually, (laughs) I used one of those AI detection tools uh, the other day. So I wrote an original composition and put it through and it didn't, give me any flags, but then I took that same composition and ran it through, uh, GPT and it made a few modifications, put it through, uh, the checker and it's like, Oh, it's fine. No problem. So, uh, I don't, I'm not investing too much in that. You know, one thing that I would recommend is, um, especially when it comes to providing feedback, like discussion forums in the online world, everyone is just beat on those. Like, I'm doing away with discussion forums completely. And instead I'm opting for people to download Zoom, learn how to record themselves, and then I'll give them a prompt and then they just record it. And then they they submit that because at least the feedback is is true, it's genuine. And while it is impromptu, uh, it's, a, it's an accurate articulation of who they are and, and what they want to say versus just going and and. Uh, generating some some content. Um, and th- this also makes things a little bit more fresh for the students because ironically, they don't want to turn their cameras on when you're lecturing. So you lecture to a bunch of black boxes, but they also have no problem turning their cameras on to do essentially like a video digest. And that's been really successful for me. So that might be a, a useful tactic. Um, I love that idea. Yeah, yeah I do as well. Right I, yeah, this is great. 
I, yeah. I think also when it comes to, I, I don't remember what I was watching, but it was someone who was a faculty member in, in an English department. They were talking about in class, actually encouraging using chat GPT for a first draft. And again, including that as part of a process. And then you take that draft that kind of sets up a structure and you then edit it and you, you make it your own. And so, you know, really thinking about how these tools, I mean, personally, I'm using chat GPT almost daily. Um, and so really teaching the students how I'm using it to help, you know, set up a structure, a backbone to something, and then making sure it is my own voice, I, I think is something that we can teach and we can get it for a response and it can be helpful. And in reality, we can't stop them. So no, absolutely not. Yeah. So Abby, what are you using it daily on this? Um, like I'm still at an experimental oh. stage with it, but I, email you know. responses, recommendation letters for students, yes. different reports I have to write. Oh, I use it all the time. I, 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 I type things really quickly, Judy, that I don't have to think too much about whether or not I sound academic enough. And then I throw it in and say, make this sound academic. And it spits it back out to me. Sorry. I, uh, <laughs> I, I use it for meal planning. So meal planning has been fantastic, especially in a house with three different diets. I'll fully admit to this. I used it for a grant. Now, this was an experiment. I saw a grant from one of the institutions I teach at, and it was like a, a student engagement grant. And so the, the idea was, well, this program needs a website that features student work. It needs a portfolio. I want to do the project, but I don't want to write the grant. So I, I've been really working on my prompt engineering uh, with my team, and uh, we got it down to a pretty good science, at least for us. So I built out the prompt, and it was hyper-specific, and then I hit generate, and I copied the text and put it into the grant, and I got the grant. <laughs> and like it was an interesting experiment because no one was the wiser and, and maybe no one even cared but it, it just goes to show you that like it can have some success for you i i recommend to my students to start with chat gpt in an outline form like chat gpt give me three different outline ideas for this particular topic and then, you know, show me that outline, choose a direction to go and then start writing. And then you can use chat to refine your language after the fact or something like that. Yeah, some good ideas. I actually, no, going back to Judy's point about using chat GPT to generate content when we're working on typographic exercises. That's great because it takes a lot of less of pain out of um, having students, you know, less of have to write original content when really they... That's not what the point is, is it really that, you know, for that exercise? So that's pretty cool. But I think everyone seems to be pretty excited about this, which is awesome. And it kind of like sort of um, leads me to that whole idea of digital literacy, even though we are coming back into a physical space, digital literacy still matters, right? Uh, I just wonder, you know, with that gap, how many students actually lost out on a year or two at the secondary level, you know, with us working in higher ed, you know, we're now going to see these students. And I had issues with entry level um, classes that, you know, they didn't have the aptitude to work the computer, work the basic universal keyboard shortcuts. Digital literacy is 
you know, really specific to what they know. So gaming is something that, you know, is top of mind, easy to do. They're phones, they can navigate apps, they can do these things. But as soon as it becomes very specific to um, a business application or to uh, a creative application, that's where, you know, they have to relearn uh, because they don't have the literacy. They don't have that ability to uh, to learn it and, and work it and display it, you know. I think merging together the last two topics, digital literacy and and AI, I think it's even more important now that they have this because the world they're going to be entering is going to be all types of whether you're working in person or hybrid or fully remote. And as technology moves along, they're going to have to keep up with it. And so if they're coming in at this point where they're below where we, we assume they're going to be, they're going to be spending their life playing catch up and not getting on the other side of that. I dealt with issues as simple as how do I use a browser to how do I use Blackboard and then introducing like how to use Adobe software was like an insurmountable task for the people that had those types of challenges. And and I point blank told them like, if if you're having trouble using a browser, this is not the class for you. You're going to have to come back at a later time. And I hated saying that because I knew that I failed them by way of the university failing them. Digital Literacy Foundations is not really still not present in a typical four-year curriculum. Even as a gen, like there should be at least two class gen ed classes you have to take first year and then a sophomore, like to give you that that foundation, especially with students, uh, 2020, 2021 graduates, uh, 2022 graduates from high school even uh, would be tremendously beneficial. You know, uh, one thing that I was thinking about the other day was the application of graphic design knowledge into a single knowledge base. So the the thinking is, we develop a a knowledge base that contains like everything there is to know about graphic design, right? All of the sub-disciplines, all of the artists, all the designers, the history, all of it. And then it's just a chat bot. And, you know, I looked it up. It's surprisingly easy to do. It's actually shockingly easy to do. You, You collect your resources, you drop it in, the AI learns everything that you dropped in, and then you can start to have a conversation about it. Matter of fact, I had a PDF version of GDUSA magazine and I put that in, in this knowledge base and I, and I basically queried like someone's name, like Danielle Kidney, like uh, what page of the magazine features Danielle Kidney? And it told me immediately. I'm like, that's actually a really cool resource to be able to build for our students um, because it's, it's leveraging the power of that AI tech while also still providing them learning opportunities, but then also allowing them to generate their own path of curiosity throughout the entire discipline. So I'm building it. None of you can do it. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm going to, I'm going to conscript you all to contribute, of course, but uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting um Interesting way to kind of, sort of begin rounding up, I guess, where where we are right now. It's been it's been great to to talk to you guys, really, like over these sessions and and see where we were, where we are now, and of course we've got all these new exciting developments which are happening, and they're of course like sort of you know really kind of drilling down the need for not just ourselves but also our students to to be literate and equipped with the twenty first century skills that they're going to need entering the workplace. You know, so that's going to be something that I'm 
I'm going to be pursuing through some more of these um, these conversations at a later time. But just as a final thoughts, what skills do you guys feel our students need to take from us into the creative industries? I mean, I think you hit it right on that those other skills are going to be so important. Again, AI, changing what we do, the collaboration, communication skills are so important. I, I also have uh, really stressed helping our students develop confidence in their own technical abilities. So empowering them to understand that things are going to change, but that they can change along with them. And so really rethinking how we're teaching technology so that we are teaching them how to teach themselves in the future, rather than saying, these are the skills you need. You're done. You got it. Now you're set. And so that that is something I hope folks are focusing on so that our students do have um, the confidence to, to continue to grow and learn. Mm-hmm. Creative problem solving. I'm always going to come back to that uh, 100% of the time. Uh, having our students understand that what will differentiate them from their competitors, from the jobs that they want, from the careers that they want to build is going to be how they solve problems, not just creative problems, but problems from other people, problems from other industries, whatever the problem is, we have to help them solve things creatively, efficiently, and effectively. And, you know, that way they'll be prepared to take on any challenge. And one thing I've seen uh, a lack of is, is creative problem solving. Students are are entering the industry and they're like, they don't know how to solve anything uh, or they maybe they can't find a job there is a genuine seemingly a lack of, of curiosity so if if there's anything like we need to make perpetually curious creative problem solvers mm-hmm. um, and if if you can do that then they will be well prepared to do anything because that is a almost entirely autonomous activity it is self-propelled and you know I would I would always advocate for that. Yeah, soft skills and, and tech skills are going to be important, but at the end of the day, it's all about adaptation and that creative problem solving, that curiosity, those are two factors that will help you adapt to anything. And those students are, are going to see better careers as a result. I love that. Perpetually curious, creative problem solvers. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't I trademarked it. Uh, no, go ahead. <laughs> And Judy, final thoughts? Yeah, you know what? I go back to the fundamentals. So time management, get your ideas. And we don't teach enough about how to manage time because which just really feeds to the um, mental health status of our students. The basic skills. It's great to have these AI technology to do our writing, but let's go back to um, grammar and spelling. Let's get, let's solidify that. And Finding the confidence um, that they don't need to be perfectionists. They need to go through the process and build their skills because as they build their skills, their level of improvement is just going to excel and they're going to be so much more happy with their process. But if out of the gate, if they're expecting, if their expectations are too high on themselves, they beat themselves up. So it really goes to, again, to their mental health status. I see a lot of students that really struggle um, and it's, it's becoming a really, it's becoming a pandemic within itself. What we're seeing, what I'm seeing anyway, in my classroom, in my environment. And, and that has a lot to do with their, uh, their success and failures. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, 
thank you for that. I think lots of soft skills will will really lots of um drive what we do forwards. Technology always changes, but ultimately solving problems, becoming confident, becoming learners, you know, continuous learning is um independent learning. Again, lots of all really important points. And I thank you guys for for taking the time out today at this busy time of the semester to just chat. And can I sort of uh, really nicely finish things off, you know, that we started what seems to have been less of 10 years ago, except it wasn't, but it really does feel like that sometimes. <laughs> so thank you, everybody. Thank you, Abby, RJ, Judy, and have a enjoyable summer. Thanks, John. Good seeing you all. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Great initiative. Thanks again. Thanks, everyone. Um,